Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussion Podcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $3 a month or $25 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Now, a word of caution. Please recognize you may come to believe, like many of your students do, that you are a scriptural, doctrinal, history expert. A recent study revealed that more people think they know about a topic, the more likely they are to allege understanding beyond what they know, even to the point of feigning knowledge of false facts and fabricated information. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and I'm joined again with Chris Bloxham. Chris, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me back on. Awesome. It was a lot of fun having uh, having you at Sunstone at the session I just did on uh, Joseph's uh, tre- uh, treasure digging and seer stones, folk magic. You brought with you your uh, never-before-seen Mark Hoffman seer stone, uh, and the people seemed to really dig that. They were coming up afterward and taking lots of pictures uh, that was pretty cool. It was uh it was a lot of fun. It was a good suggestion you had made to bring it. Yeah, and it kind of tied it in really good with the session. I just uh it's a lot of fun being at Sunstone, but it's even more of a blast uh when your good friend is the guy moderating your session. <laughs> well, you're you're very kind. So, tonight a lot of stuff's been going on as as we've talked about and it kind of led into us kind of quickly putting this episode together. But just a couple of days ago, Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve retracts this story that he tells over a month ago about uh, these 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 two brothers. One's a missionary, and he's on a mission out in California, and he runs into his brother, not really knowing it at first. There's some dogs, and these dogs are barking and, and chomping at the bit and charging the fence, and all of a sudden they get really quiet. And, and then suddenly this, uh, these, this two missionaries, one of them being this guy's brother, but again, not knowing it, uh, as the dogs quiet down, they essentially walk right through the gate and in their conversation, they figure out that their brothers and this long lost brother who joins the hell's angels and has these Doberman pinchers, uh, ends up, uh, re, uh, re being reactivated into the church. And it was a really cool miracle story. It got quite a bit of rounds in the Deseret news and, I know that there was somebody in my ward that mentioned it Sunday, and a lot of people were telling me that in their wards, people were telling the story. And then two days ago, three days ago, Elder Holland retracts the story and says the thing was essentially all the miraculous pieces and parts of it were were no longer true and gone is the story, right? Well, if all the miraculous parts of the story are gone, you're not left with any story, right? No, you've got some guy who comes back to the church which, you know, that happens every day and <laughs> twice as many leave every day. So yeah, not a, not a whole lot of miracle left. <laughs> and and it got the two of us thinking, we were wondering, like, what if we made a list of all the faith-promoting stories we've heard that have been maybe even pieces of our testimony through the years 
and we just went through them one by one and see if either one of us kind of know more about the story and if there's maybe a little more a little more yarn to these stories than what really occurred. Ensure you do not teach things that are untrue, out of date, or odd and quirky. Um, yeah, I, I kind of look through some of these old stories that get retold. And, you know, as you and I were talking about the Holland talk, one of the things that you and I discussed was, you know, this only happened a couple of years ago. And it's only been retold as an authoritarian, uh, from an authoritative perspective by Holland and um, Clark. Um, and even still, there's there's a few more people, what, five or six others that went home and wrote it in their journals. And it's amazing that even now, in 2017, over the last couple of years, this story has been, um, the facts have not been consistent. People are the the people that are retelling it are are not retelling it the same way every time, and it's just such a, a current modern example of how a faith promoting story can start to change almost immediately after the event happens. When when you say that, what I think about right is there are stories of Jesus feeding seven thousand in one set of uh, one gospel, and then there's Jesus feeding five thousand in another gospel, and and throughout history we've always tried to reconcile that by saying there. Two separate occasions, and Jesus is just feeding a lot of people on both on both times. And the reality is, once you understand how this Holland story, this Elder Holland story, just became almost got a life of its own, you begin to realize almost throughout religious history how it could be so easy for miracle stories to begin to shift and change, and in the same story found a year later now contradicting itself. Yeah, exactly. To me, the first story that, I don't know, came to mind as you and I were talking was the transformation of Brigham Young. And you and I were kind of talking about this earlier, uh, just, you know, just kind of discussing how the story came to be. And I mean, without getting into all the details, uh, everyone knows the basic outline of the story. Joseph Smith dies in June of 1844. Sidney Rigdon returns from Pittsburgh the 12 come back from their missions. They're currently out um, trying to get Joseph Smith elected. They're out telling everyone his platform and uh, letting everyone know that he's running for president of the United States. When word gets to them that Joseph Smith and Hiram have been killed in Carthage. So August, they all get together and uh, they call a meeting. Sidney Rigdon gets there before the 12. And I think there's nine members of the 12 on August 8th when they have the big meeting. That sounds about right. Is that, yeah. is that right? I think there's 12, nine there. Uh, 5,000 saints in attendance. And if, uh, if you'll remember between 1834 and, and 1844, Joseph Smith suggests at least eight different methods for succession. So it's, it's really a, a, a complex, confusing time for the members of the church. Um, so it's really anything goes, I, I guess it could go any, either way or, or anyway, since they died so quickly and unexpected. Right. Right. And this story, I mean, I remember this was one of the stories I learned early on in my membership in the church that, that the way in which we knew that the appropriate person or group to lead the church was Brigham Young in the Quorum of the Twelve was the fact that 
when Brigham Young stood up to talk, this, this event happens where he speaks to the crowd and, and all of a sudden he takes on the voice and appearance of the prophet Joseph Smith. And, and I've, I built a piece of my testimony on that story, Chris, because that's what told me that the 12 were the successors, uh, to the church when Joseph, when Joseph passed away. And in fact, I think it's the Brigham Young manual that we did many, many years ago when they started these teachings of the presidents that there's a whole chapter dedicated to the 12 having the keys, how we knew they were supposed to lead. And, and so we spend some emotional capital, time, resources, energy learning that story. Yeah, but when you look into it, you realize that Brigham Young doesn't even think or realize or he's not even purporting that this is exactly what Joseph Smith wanted to do. Uh, I believe it's 1847 in Winter Quarters that Brigham Young says that had Hiram Smith lived, he should be the leader of the church. So it's really indicative of what was going through his mind um, and, and him not realizing or not uh, it, it not being clear to him, even in 1847, that the 12 were the ones that were supposed to take over if Joseph died. Which, which doesn't, which is huge if we don't have the transfiguration, Chris, but we have it, right? We've got Brigham Young literally transfiguring right before the entire multitude. And everyone, like I'm, I'm guessing everybody runs home and writes that in their journals, correct? Well, no, not, no, no. <laughs> um, in fact, I don't think there's any contemporary, uh, writings of anyone. In fact, I've got Wilford Woodruff's journals in front of me. If I pull out volume two, Wilford Woodruff was a, a prolific diary keeper. And if I turn to the page of August 8, 1844, Wilford Woodruff wrote seven pages in his diary that day. Seven pages. And there's not one mention of the mantle transferring to Brigham Young or any sort of transfiguration or his speech changing or, or anything of note. There's a lot of, um, he records a lot of what Brigham Young said, but nothing having to do with the transfiguration. Hmm. But, but okay. So Wilford Woodruff doesn't say anything, but Orson Hyde does, right? Like Orson Hyde is an important person in the church and, and he writes later on in this journal, that uh, that he saw this whole event take place, correct? Yeah, he's one of the first people to retell the story of the day that uh, of this meeting on August eighth. Uh, he's one of the first to retell the story uh, of this meeting. But um, the problem is, is that Orson Hyde wasn't even there. He doesn't uh, get to Nauvoo for another five days. So, so Orson Hyde writes. In his journal, he tells others that he's seen this event and he's kind of, like you say, he's one of the first ones who spreads the word, uh, that this event has taken place. And you're saying that he doesn't arrive in Nauvoo till after five days later from the event that he's testifying he saw happen. Yeah. And there were other church leaders that, uh, are of note that recorded the events of that day. For example, Parley P. Pratt in his autobiography i think it comes out in 1857 1856 1857 he's killed in may of 1857 and he's just almost done completing his his autobiography uh he writes about that event and doesn't mention the transfiguration thomas bullock J jacob hamlin you know there's a lot of other church leaders that are there 
But Orson Hyde's kind of good for this. Um, if we need somebody to retell a church event to support a current narrative, Orson Hyde, uh, he, he's, this isn't the only time that he steps forward and, and adds some, uh, adds some authority. Yeah, he, he certainly puts some flavor, I think, sometimes in, in events to make them a little more supernatural. But there is, if I'm not mistaken, Chris, there is one contemporary source that locks down this uh, Brigham Young transfiguration. It's, uh, I believe it's in a diary of George, I don't know how you pronounce his last name, Laub, L-A-U-B. Does that sound familiar? Okay, Bill, you're right. George Lobb is the only supposed contemporary uh, account. He does, there is a supposed contemporary account, uh, but it's the only one. And um, what do you think of that account, Bill? Well, the interesting thing is that it's a, it is a diary reference. It is uh, supposed to have been written in 1846, so shortly after, but it's much more contemporary than the other accounts that we have. And so they've done this, this thing, a small tan colored leather diary that he's got that's misled so many scholars. They've done a study on this, this diary and they realize that it's a copy of the original by Lobb and that it has additions to it. And so we actually discover the original diary and the original diary, which we now have, you know, in existence, we can go to it, we can look at it, contains no reference to the transfiguration of Brigham Young. And I think this is an awkward thing for early Latter-day Saints, but there's this understanding that early in church history, the uh, leaders of the church and their scribes and some of the other members that they give the responsibility to were often asked to take some of these early documents and to almost impose a different historical statement into some of these pieces and parts. And one of them that this seems to have happened with is the George Lobb diary, which later on has the addendum put into it as if it's the original, that he's seen the Brigham Young transfiguration, when in reality, it is not in his original writings, which I think is crazy once you open the door to any early church document being fiddled with and you having to take that into account as you examine each and every document on its own merit. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a great point. What about another story? What about another story from church history? You name one. Let's pick one. Pick one that was like something you thought about through your uh, your time in the church that you you saw as being miraculous. And uh, and let's see if I've got anything to add to it. Well, um what about Quetzalcoatl? That was something that was big when I was on my mission in the 80s. Yeah, there's still guys down there doing uh, tours, right? There's still guys showing you old baptismal fonts that are holes in the ground. Yeah, we used to show uh, we used to show as missionaries the uh, video. Man, what was it? Uh, Ancient America speaks with the old guy, and he would tell you where King Benjamin maybe stood <laughs> in the Americas and and where yeah. he gave his sermons at. Yeah, so Quetzalcoatl, it's an interesting um, it's an interesting idea. I think a lot of Latter Day Saints early on. Uh, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, really would have built this as kind of a part of their testimony because there were so many stories going around, including the video you speak of. One of the things we've come to grips with is that uh, scholars like Brant Gardner, Brant Gardner, who's a very faithful, very uh, a, an apologist in some ways for the church, very well respected within orthodox circles, uh, has done a lot of research on Katsukatl 
and essentially has arrived at the idea that the stories originally told about this white god from the Indians' own language and their own narrative are very different from what the Spaniards picked up on and retold. And so while the what the recounting was by the Spaniards, which in a sense was kind of a, a distorted story similar to the one we started talking about today with Elder Holland, the the Spaniards told a certain story about this white god. And once we go back into the original native language, those connections disappear. And and so to say that there's this great white god, he's going to return, it was the uh, Quetzalcoatl of the, of the Native Americans, that is pretty much all died out. You don't see really anybody having those conversations today because that scholarship is no longer seen as up-to-date and valid in what it says. So that's another one we just have to set down, Chris, like you... You can't plan on these Indians who are also Lamanites, um, having had these big stories in their, in their narratives about the, this great white bearded god returning. So that's another one we just have to just set aside and, and move on. But I'm sure we've got some good ones in here. Yeah, like the, uh, well, we just got back from Salt Lake. Do you remember seeing the monument of the seagull that we drove by? Yeah, the, the giant bird, right? The, the story that I remember hearing, Chris, is that when the saints get out west to Utah, it's really tough terrain. They're trying to get their crops in the ground, trying to get this started, and they really need this to to go well. And these seagulls come along, they eat these crickets, throw them back up, and then go and eat some more. And this is just one of the greatest miracles. In uh, it's trumped up as Mormonism, so great, right? That that a seagull is uh, is the state bird. Yeah, um, and. And seagulls do eat crickets, and they they do eat bugs. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the story goes that in 1848, so the saints arrive in 1847, July, and the very first crop is being harvested harvested from the fall in the spring of 1848. However, there was a late frost, and uh, there was a drought, and there were also crickets. Um, and Bill Hartley does a fantastic article on this, uh, that he went back and kind of got to the bottom of it. One of the very first complete accounts of the cricket story is told in 1930 by Susie Young Gates. She was the daughter of Brigham Young. She wrote a biography called The Life of the Life Story of Brigham Young. And it's, it's the most complete story we have. It's not the earliest one, but it's the most complete. Um, but you know who the first person to tell the seagull story is? Any idea, Bill? Um, Take a guess. let me throw a guess out Take there. Take a guess. Um, Orson Hyde. Orson Hyde. That's right. <laughs> who also wasn't there, by the way. Um, it, not there again. No, he was actually on a, a mission in Europe at the time. It's interesting that he's unpresent for a lot of miracles. Yeah. And he says, I have a quote here by him. So this is in 1853. He says, the hand of providence prepared agents and sent them to destroy the destroyer, a circumstance that was rare, one that was never known to exist before and never since to any extent. Um, but that's not true. Um, these crickets are actually, um, they're, they're, they're a type of cicada and they come out every seven years and, and swarm. So basically there's a, a um, a hatch of these locusts every year. Um, and sometimes it's worse. Sometimes it's not as bad. 
But uh, what also happens is no one, there's no contemporary newspaper or journal accounts of this miracle of the seagulls eating the crickets and saving the, the Latter-day Saints crops. Um, one story that's told later is that the, the seagulls come and eat the crickets, but then throw up the, the crickets so they can eat more. Uh, but we've learned since that seagulls don't digest the whole cricket and they throw up every time. Um, they can't digest the wings and the legs, I believe. Uh, so that, that wasn't, uh, yeah. so you're saying that crickets have, or seagulls have always eaten crickets, that there's a, a, a bigger hatch of these crickets every so many years. And that seagulls like to feed on these crickets and naturally eat them, throw them up, parts of them, and then go back and eat some more. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Uh, Bill, what about the Thomas Marsh story? That's told as a faithful kind of a. It's kind of like the Holland story, isn't it? Isn't it told from a faithful perspective to teach a lesson? It is, and it makes its way into our manual every four years. Of course, we've just had a lesson on this in Sunday school. So for those who were serving down in primary or or in some other auxiliary that kept you out of Sunday school, um, you missed out on this, this opportunity to talk about Thomas Marsh. But the basic premise is that Thomas Marsh leaves the church because his wife and Lucinda Harris are having this uh, squabble over this arrangement they've made to, you know, somebody milks the cow and gets the milk and then they parse out the cream and the strippings and this person gets the cream and that person gets the strippings and they trade things back and forth. And so they each benefit from this relationship. And apparently one of them begins to to not live up to their end of the deal and so the squabble begins. And the story goes that Thomas Marsh and his wife, uh, Elizabeth, I believe it is, they they appeal to the first presidency after being told by the local leadership that they as the Marshes were in the wrong. And keep in mind that Marsh is the president of the 12 at this time. They appeal to the first presidency and they are denied again. And again, allegedly, Thomas Marsh leaves the church over this incident because because of the arrangement his wife had with Lucinda Harris. Several things factor into this. And. And again, I think the idea we're trying to teach here is that people leave the church over nonsense. People leave the church over petty reasons, simple reasons. And and anytime someone leaves the church, you can just assume they haven't prayed enough, they weren't faithful enough, they wanted to sin, they were lazy, or they just didn't like the arrangement and were in the wrong with some milk and strippings. The, the trouble is twofold. One is that Marsh gives us the reasons he leaves the church and the main reason he names is that he's very disappointed in the Latter-day Saints in the way that they're treating their neighbors. They're forming mobs. They are carrying out violence on their non-Mormon neighbors. He also has some discomfort with polygamy as well. And and that comes out a little bit, especially when he returns to the church and Brigham Young and is having a conversation as they as they decide whether to bring him back in or not. The the other side of this story that needs to be mentioned is that about, again, we don't know the exact dates, but approximately six months before this squabble ends up in an appeal to the first presidency, Joseph Smith, the prophet, has just taken Lucinda Harris as a plural wife, or at least has entered some type of relationship, and even LDS Orthodox scholars called it a connubial. Yes, a connubial relationship, which means it involved all the facets of a 
real marriage, which essentially is their nice way of saying that Joseph and Lucinda likely had sex. And so Joseph marries Lucinda Harris. And then shortly after, Thomas Marsh and Elizabeth Marsh appeal to the first presidency against Lucinda Harris, not knowing about this relationship. Chris, what do you think the chances are that Joseph would side against his plural wife that he's keeping secret from everybody else in the church? I think that's zero. Is there a number less than zero? <laughs> Negative one? Nope, that's, that's as low as you get. So there's no chance that Joseph Smith and the First Presidency are going to side with the Marshes. So if the milk and stripping story did happen, and the only evidence we have is that Thomas Marsh says that whatever uh, issue was going on between him and George Harris, it had been resolved. We don't have Thomas Marsh ever talking about this account, and it comes rather late um, I believe from maybe George Smith in like 20 years later. And so it's just, it's, it's not a story you'd want to spread around as if it was a true valid story. And even if it did happen, it didn't happen the way we, we like to talk about it, say it, portray it. And so we're better off just not running Marsh's name through the mud. Um, I'll tell you another story, Chris, that, that I was quite entertained with early on in my time in the church is the idea of, uh, is it Lorenzo Snow who goes into the temple? And this is, I think, in the midst of this transition, transition of the prophet before him passing away. But, yeah. but he tells us, right? He tells us that he saw Jesus Christ in the temple. What, what do we know about this story? Yeah, Wilford Woodruff has just died in San Francisco and his body's coming back on a train. And, Lorenzo Snow is in the Salt Lake Temple, and the way the story is told, I mean, it's fascinating because Lorenzo Snow doesn't write this story in his journal. He doesn't tell anybody about it, except he tells his granddaughter, and I think her name was Allie Pond, Allie, Allie Young Pond, and she's a young girl, and he tells the story to her much later, and then, well, I don't know, three or four years later, and then she relays the story 30 years later, to Lorenzo Snow's son. So this is a third-hand story that's 30 years after the fact. And uh, if, if you recall, he's in the temple with his, with his granddaughter, or it could be his niece, and he says, I want, to, I want to stop right here, and I want to tell you something. It was right here that the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me at the time of the death of President Woodruff. And I'll read it exactly as he says it. He instructed me to go right ahead and rec- and reorganize the first presidency of the church and not wait as it had been done after the death of the previous presidents and that I was to succeed President Woodruff. He stood right here, three feet above the floor, and it looked as though he stood on a plate of solid gold. So fascinating. I'm, I'm with you on this story because it's fascinating. Um. If Jesus Christ, the fact that Jesus Christ would appear to a, a Latter-day prophet and the reason that he appeared was to simply say, don't hesitate to reorganize the first presidency. Uh, it seems a little bit of, it seems a little anticlimactic. Uh, does it to you? Sure. But, it, but if he is doing it on this small occasion, then certainly he's meeting with them regularly to talk about big issues as well. Yeah, but something that's interesting about the story is that years later, Heber J. Grant says that no prophet has seen Christ since Joseph Smith. That's a little bit of a a twist in the story, don't you think? 
Yeah, but we've got Lorenzo Snow right in his own words telling this story. Well, he doesn't tell it to anyone that we can verify. He tells it to his granddaughter, who tells it to uh, Lorenzo's son 40 years after the fact. So do we have uh, this this sister Pond? Do we have her uh, recounting of it in her own journal, or did she she give a talk in sacrament meeting once? Or no, where, where do, no. The hmm. person that tells the story is Leroy Leroy C Snow, which is thirty forty years after the fact, and he says it was Lorenzo Snow's granddaughter or possibly niece that told him the story. So it's a third hand account that's thirty to forty years after the fact. But I'm sure she was alive at this point that we could go back and ask her, right? Like somebody went to her and asked no, her. No, she's passed away. So she was passed away when Leroy uh, decided to tell this story. It's a, it's at this point a third-hand story, and neither of the first or second-hand witnesses are alive. Right, right. It's um, probably more mm. of a. It probably go, it falls in the category of folklore. Mm. Chris, we are we're we're beginning to slice and dice these. I'm, I'm hoping we have some really good ones here left that are going to stand up. Let's, uh, well, let's, let's try another one. <laughs> well, okay. There is, um, what about the story that we've all heard that Moroni blessed the Manti Temple site? So you're right. And this is an interesting one because there's actually a map in existence that the early leaders of the church, Brigham Young, maybe Wilford Woodruff, John Taylor, Sometime around their presidencies, there's this map floating around that shows Moroni's travel from the eastern side of the United States out to Salt Lake City. Sometime while he's out there, he goes to Manti, the temple site, blesses the temple site, carrying the gold plates the whole time with him, sort of Laban, uh, in the Liahona, right? Because we have some records that show the Liahona might have been with this stuff. And then we also have the, the Nephite spectacles, the Urim and Thummim. And so, so Moroni is carrying all this stuff and he goes out to Utah, blesses the Manti site, stops off in Arizona for something, and then makes his way back to Palmyra to, uh, to bury the plates in the Drumlin in New York that we, that we suppose is the Hill Camorra. Those there's, there's a lot of debate there. The, the trouble here is this. Forever we've tried to have this debate of, is it, humanly possible for a single person to go from, for instance, Central America, which is one proposed idea of where the Book of Mormon took place, and then make their way all the way to Palmyra, New York, all by themselves, single-handedly. And Mark Wright, who's an apologist for the church, um, I believe he might even work for BYU, um, works in, in, you know, this type of stuff in the, in the anthropology, geography, um, different kinds of studies that deal with kind of showing historicity of Book of Mormon. And, uh, Brother Wright says that there's one human being on record through the history of mankind who has made this kind of a travel by themselves. But, but there's a problem. Moroni doesn't just need to make it from Central America to Palmyra. He needs to make it from wherever the Book of Mormon takes place out to Utah, then to Arizona, and then back to Palmyra. In that distance, the change in weather, the animals that he would have encountered, the different uh, landscapes he would have encountered, like no one's ever done that. And not only has no one ever done that, 
but no one's done half that and no one's done like a third of that. And, and so once you realize just how treacherous a journey that would be for one person to go by themselves carrying uh, a, a giant sack of all this stuff, um, we, we know the plates weighed 60 pounds. What is the sort of Laban weigh? Another 20, 30 pounds. Now you've got the breastplate, you've got the Urim and Thummim. So now Moroni's got 100 pounds on his back, and he's traveling all the way out to the western side of the United States and then back again. No one's ever done it. If you want to say, like, you know, God's a, a God of miracles and, and he made the way, that's fine. It would just be, by all reason and rationale, it would be the most uh, preposterous journey to, to turn into a, a real valid thing that happened that, that anyone's ever heard in the history of verifiable history. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. That's a tough it's, one. You know, and maybe Moroni buried everything. Maybe he just walked without this stuff. Maybe he left the plates and the sword of Laban and the, you know, Nephite interpreters in the ground. I don't know, but it, it certainly doesn't to go through all that trouble to etch these things, I can't imagine him burying them and then walking to the other side of the United States, feeling safe having left the plates back somewhere else. So why would Brigham Young, if the story is manufactured, do you think that it's recorded wrong or do you think Brigham Young could have said that? So I think Brigham says it and I think we have to get back into the same thing that happens with Elder Holland last week which is that when we hear a story or think an idea, it's, it's, and, and when we go back in time to the way we tell history is so much different. Today we tell history in a way that we need to get our facts straight. We need to get as close to the actual event as we can and tell it as close to the actual event as we can. And the reality is the further back you go in time, the more acceptable and almost encouraged it is to embellish stories and to change the facts so that you can even tell a false story to teach a true principle and people would consider that of worth and acceptable. And one example would be pretty, you know, somewhat recent history is George Washington and the cherry tree. That, that makes its way into George Washington's story. We, we come to grips that it doesn't really happen. And yet for some time, people still tell the story because it teaches uh, an important principle. And so we just have to come to grips that on some level, Brigham Young likely was embellishing or, you know, feeling like this had to have happened, like there had to be a temple site and it had to be blessed. So let's assume Moroni did it. And and we have to allow room that folklore and fables make their way into our history. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's similar to the story. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about John Taylor's watch and how – the story about, you know, the, you know what I'm talking about, how the watch, you know, he's shot in the watch and it saves his life. He's blown back into the room. Yeah. I mean, it's the only reason he lived and others died in that room that day. And he's the one that tells the story. He believes he's shot in the watch. He believes it's, you know, Ooh. he tells the story of it. Uh, let me look it up real quick. He says, he says, my family, we were not a little startled to find out that my watch had been struck with a ball. I sent for my vest, and upon examination, it was found that there was a cut, as if with a knife, in the vest pocket. Uh, the pocket, the fragments of the glass were found literally ground to powder. It then occurred to me that a ball had struck me at the time I felt myself falling out the window. Um, let's see. Ball struck my watch. It forced me back. The problem is, 
The problem is, is you can get on Google and pull up an image of John Taylor's watch. And uh, there's no bullet hole in it. But but he he knew he had the watch and he says it hit the watch and he says it. It struck. I mean, there has to be a bullet hole, right? Uh, well, you can look it up yourself and look at it. There's no bullet hole. The glass is shattered. Um, but otherwise, the watch is intact. Uh, the hands are missing, although at the time the watch had stopped at exactly 516 on the day of the martyrdom, the June 27th, 1844. Um, but there's no, no bullet hole in the watch. Uh, <laughs> so, no. so this, this story again told by the very person it happened to. And you're right, Chris. I'm just looking it up now. So LDS Living Magazine, if you were to search John Taylor, Watch, Carthage, you get LDS Living Magazine has this search result that comes up that says it's a story about how the watch saved John Taylor's life. And then right underneath it is another link to LDS Living Magazine, which is three Mormon myths you likely don't know. And number two is that the watch that saved John Taylor's life actually didn't catch a bullet and save his life. It's just a myth. And so even LDS Living is telling a contradictory story through two of their articles. It, and like you say, if John Taylor tells this himself, we just have to come to grips with how easy it is, even for the very person that the events happened to, for a story to get out of hand and become larger than life. Yeah, I, uh, I've i been to Carthage jail probably two dozen times. And every time I sit in the martyrdom room, I think, uh, as you, you know, you're looking at the bullet hole in the door and the one that was shot through the lock. And I think of the moment that this went down. And, you know, uh, uh, Joseph's attorney, who was the first one to go back to the room and kind of categorize what had happened, counted 34, 35 bullet holes in the room, but he couldn't find any bullets. Scavengers had already been through and picked them off as souvenirs, most likely. But one thing he does note is there's a blood stain on the floor. Uh, and as we bought the jail and took care of it, our church and took people on tours, we could have, we put a clear plastic box over the top of it to protect it for many, many, many years. And it wasn't until the late seventies, early eighties that we pulled up the floorboards and threw them away so that the stain isn't there. Um, and even that's a fascinating story about faith, you know, a faith promoting story that people used to, people that I've met have said they remember when the blood stain was there. And, and wasn't there a story of somebody who ran the house that, that in order to kind of keep the story going and keep it as a discussion piece, they would take like ketchup, barbecue sauce and grape jelly and like rub it on the floor to like make the stain more prominent. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that was the recipe, but. When you hear a story like that, and I would imagine that anyone listening to us talk about this would think, did the church really allow Hiram's blood to lay on the floor until the late 1970s, early 1980s? Wouldn't that be a, a, a wouldn't that be a, a almost a, a sacred site? You know, like, uh, uh, I just can't imagine they would just leave it there for people to walk across or, you know, keep a carpet over or, or whatever. And, it's it's not the case. The the floorboards were taken up years and years ago, and the stain that was on the floor wasn't Hiram's blood. So you're right, but I don't know about the formula. You're talking about somebody throwing ketchup on there every day. I don't I don't know about that. That seems a little <laughs> seems a little uh, 
silly, but. I, I was reading, I don't know if it was dialogue. I think it had to be a dialogue article, maybe a journal of Mormon history, but that, uh, and I'll link this. We'll link tons of, um, websites and, and different URLs that you can go to and kind of look all these things up yourself. But I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure there is a dialogue or journal of Mormon thought or some other scholarly article out there that talks about the, the person who took care of the home, um, or taking care of the jail, uh, property would go every once in a while and make this, the blood stain look a little darker by adding things to it. Hmm. That would be fascinating if you could come up with the formula. Okay. Yeah. I think it's like two parts barbecue sauce, <laughs> one part. <laughs> <laughs> what about, um, what about the miracle of when Mary Fielding's ox is revived? Do you remember that story? Yeah, doesn't Mary Fielding get she gets her consecrated oil out that she just uh, consecrated uh, you know, a couple hours earlier and her her oxen falls to the ground and uh Mary Fielding Smith walks up and anoints the oxen with oil, lays her hands on its head and and it arises, right? Yeah, it was it its name was Old Bully, wasn't it? Wasn't that the name of it? Old, old, old bully. bully. Old Bully. Um, this is actually one of the miracles that I think somewhat stands, although not in the, not in the way that we tell it. So, yeah, in fact, I'll just read, I guess, a, a little, a, a bit of the actual event, how it happened. But the story we tell people is that the ox becomes ill or falls or whatnot, and she lays her hands on its head and blesses it. Um, so it is, it is a myth in that sense because that's not what happens. But this story is still, I think, somewhat inspiring. So for those who are gonna, you know, criticize this episode and say we're just tearing all these things down, like truth to me is important. I know it's important to you, Chris. We, we want to go through these miracle stories and talk about them. But, but if there is something still miraculous that happens, like, yeah, absolutely, let's hold it up and let's talk about it. And, and in this case, uh, it says, um, things went along quite smoothly. Uh, until they reached a point midway between the Platte and the Sweetwater Rivers. Remember that name, Chris, Sweetwater River? We'll get back to that one in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a much more interesting tale. Uh, when one of Mary's best oxen lay down in the yoke as if poisoned and all supposed he would die, all the teams in the rear stopped and many gathered around to see what had happened. In a short time, the captain perceived that something was wrong. And came to the spot. The ox stiffened in the throes of death. The captain blustered about and exclaimed, He is dead. There is no use working with him. We'll have to fix up some way to take the widow along. I told her she would be a burden on the company. But in this, he was greatly mistaken. Mary said nothing, but went to her wagon and returned with a bottle of consecrated oil. She asked her brother, Joseph and James Lawson, to administer to her fallen ox, believing that the Lord would raise him. It was a solemn moment there under the open sky. A hush fell over the scene. The men removed their hats, all bowed their heads as Joseph Fielding, who had been promised by Heber C. Kimball that he would have power to raise the dead, knelt, laid his hands on the head of the prostrate ox, and prayed over it. The great beast lay stretched out and very still. Its glassy eyes looked nowhere. A moment after the administration, the animal stirred. Its huge hind legs commenced to gather under it. Its haunches started to rise. The forelegs strengthened. 
The ox stood and, without urging, started off as if nothing had happened. This amazing thing greatly astonished the onlookers. They hadn't gone very far when another ox, Old Bully, lay down under exactly the same circumstances. This time it was one of her best oxen, the loss of which would have been very serious. Again, the holy ordinance was administered. With the same results strengthened, the ox stood and, without urging, started off as if nothing had happened. This amazing thing greatly astonished the onlookers. Now, that's the account of the story. What's the problem I, with that? That sounds I, amazing. I, it is. It sounds crazy. It sounds miraculous. Man, I, I'm trying to find it in a world where two oxen within minutes of each other on the same team fall to the ground dying. And all the other people are still kind of moving along. I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. Do you have any other data on this story, Chris? I don't. I don't. I uh, This, to me, is one that maybe falls in the area of folklore or myth, or maybe it's a maybe it's a miraculous event. Right. Was it hot? Did they have leg cramps? I mean, I don't know what was going on. Uh, but, but whatever happened, these ox got back up after blessings, mm-hmm. and uh, they continued the journey. Yeah, that's a, to me, that's a cool story. What about since we're talking about since we're talking about pioneers coming west, and you mentioned that it happened between the Platte and the Sweet River, Sweetwater. Um, I immediately think about the rescue of the boys that carry the the members of the William Martin wagon trains across the Sweetwater. Uh, is that what you were thinking when you said remember that name? It is, and and that's a big miracle, right? That I think, in fact, President Hinckley. I'll read the story, and then why don't you tell us maybe some of the details that uh, okay. that you've discovered with this story? But President Hinckley recounts this story in General Conference. President Hinckley gives the talk in General Conference. It is October 1981. The title of his talk is Four Bees for Boys." Four Bees for Boys, and in this talk, he re states a quote that was stated much earlier in LDS history. It was originally in the Improvement Era. Back then, the Improvement Era in the early 1900s was a really big book. It wasn't the the, the small magazine that it became later on. Um, January 1914, pages 209 to 211. And then it was also again in the February 1914, page 287 and 288, And President Hinckley quotes this almost verbatim. Here's what he says. After every apparent avenue of escape seemed closed, three 18-year-old boys belonging to the relief party came to the rescue and to the astonishment of all who saw carried nearly every member of that ill-fated handcart company across the snowbound stream. The strain was so terrible and the exposure so great that in later years all the boys died from the effects of it. When President Brigham Young heard of this heroic act, he wept like a child and later declared publicly, that act alone will ensure C. Allen Huntington, George W. Grant, and David P. Kimball an everlasting salvation in the celestial kingdom of God, worlds without end, unquote. So 1981 President Hinckley retells the story, three 18-year-old boys. He makes it sound like they died some years later, but that it was close enough to the event that Brigham Young wept because of their deaths and assured the people he spoke to that they would have eternal life and exaltation with their Father in Heaven 
in Worlds Without End. So Chris, please don't tell me this story didn't happen this way. Uh, yeah, it didn't happen that way. <laughs> um, well, first of all, first of all, there's a doctrinal issue with Brigham Young saying this very act alone ensures these boys place in the celestial kingdom. That's not, that's not doc- doctrinally accurate. What about ordinances? What about, uh, uh, you know, priesthood and temple marriage and, you can't do one good act and erase a lifetime of sins uh, along with the things that are necessary for exaltation. And they haven't had their calling an election made sure yet, right? I doubt it because they were pretty young. Hmm. The other problem with that story is that didn't he say they were all 18? Three 18-year-old boys. He even gives their names. C. Allen Huntington, George W. Grant, and David P. Kimball, the three 18-year-old boys who went into the icy waters that day and didn't live for much longer after that. Yeah. Well, th- yeah. Neither, none of the three were 18. Okay. So maybe they're 17, 19, and several months shy of their 18th birthday. Yeah. Maybe that's what they are, but they all died pretty soon, right? No. No, they didn't, they didn't die soon. Um, I can look, let me tell you the, the dates here. Uh, let's see. Um, see, George Grant, George W. Grant, uh, was, quote, made an invalid for life. That's one of the, one of the early tellings of the story because of the crossing of the Sweetwater. But Grant's reported health problems were not enough to keep him from serving a four-year mission to England beginning in 1861. That was five years after the rescue, and he died at the age of 32 in the year 1872, nearly 16 years after the Sweetwater Rescue. He was the first to die, and he died of tuberculosis. What, What year did Brigham Young pass away? 1877. Okay, so Brigham's pretty old by this point, too, and doesn't last many years beyond this gentleman's death. Right. And then David Kimball, the other rescuer, he died in 1883 at the age of 44. Uh, he lived a very active life as well. And then Alan, uh, let's see, C. Allen Huntington, the other boy, died a few weeks shy of his 65th birthday in 1896. Having several run-ins with the law during his lifetime, Let's see. He ended up working on a ferry in southern Utah. Let's see. Yeah, he had, but, but he was in jail. Once Brigham Young, once Brigham Young has promised you your exaltation, it's kind of like having your calling an election made sure. It doesn't really matter if you have run-ins with the law after that, does it? I I, I don't know. He he certainly had a lot of them. <laughs> he was arrested many times after that. I don't know. Maybe he uh, was in more than one set of icy waters. Huh? That's right. <laughs> oh my goodness. What else? So, as I was say, another story that that I know you're fond of is. President Wilford Woodruff, like we've been dismantling some miraculous stories where something really cool happened or maybe some one person saw a single resurrected being. But in the case of Wilford Woodruff, we have him telling us that the founders of this country as a group visited him, notified him that his temple ordinances have not been done yet. And that they need to be attended to. And like, we can't put this story down because there's more than one resurrected, I should say resurrected, but there's more than one, um, spiritual being 
appearing to Wilford Woodruff. This is going to be a tough one, I think, to dismiss, uh, Chris. Well, yeah, on the surface it would be, um, because he tells the story for the first time in September 1977, just a few months after uh, he says that it, it, it occurred. Um, and then he tells it again in 1892, and then just a few months before he dies in 1898. So he tells the story three times in his lifetime. The reason the story is problematic is because the founding fathers that appeared to him, and there were also women too, um, is that several of these people had already had their temple work done or already had been, already had been, uh, baptized. Benjamin Franklin, uh, he probably holds the record out of all these people for the most, uh, baptized founding father. Um, he's baptized, uh, first in Nauvoo by John Harrington. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, as proxy, he's not physically baptized, he's proxy. Um, and then he's also, yeah, that would be weird. Yeah, that's strange. <laughs> that makes the story <laughs> even better. <laughs> and then uh, his work is done again in 1871 in the endowment house by Hayden Church. And then again in 1876. And you got to remember, 1876 would have been a big year. That's the hundredth anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Ooh, yes. So there's celebrations all across the country. There's speeches. I mean, uh, everybody's thinking about the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And there were 56 signers, if you recall that number. Um, and John Bernheisel and Hayden Church do the work for all the signers of the Declaration of Independence in 1876. And then just a year later, Wilford Woodruff, Wilford Woodruff does the uh, work for them again. And then we're still on Benjamin Franklin. He's His work is done again in 1880 in the St. George Temple, then again in 1884 in the St. George Temple, then in 1972 in the London Temple, 1975 in the Mesa, Arizona Temple, and then later 1992, the Boise Temple. Maybe this story has just been told wrong. Maybe these guys didn't come to say it's never been done. Maybe they came to say, like, knock it off. We've had it too many times. <laughs> it, it seems, I mean, you've got Woodruff saying, here's what Woodruff says was told to him. You have had the use of the endowment house for a number of years, and yet nothing has ever been done for us. By specifying the endowment house and saying nothing had been done, the implication, right, Chris, is that the baptisms and endowments and perhaps even ceilings um, had not been done for these men. And yet, as you're pointing out, most of them had these things done at least once. And and many of them had like these ordinances done multiple times over before Woodruff gets this visitation. Yeah, like George Washington, for example, was baptized, proxy baptized at least three times that we know of before the saints even left Nauvoo. Um, and I'll tell you another interesting part of this story. When Hayden Church and John Bernheisel do the work in 1876, Guess who does the confirmations? J.D. McAllister, who in a one year later is the person that does the baptizing for Wilford Woodruff. After Wilford Woodruff says, I've just had this vision of the founding fathers saying they haven't had their, their work done. And, and he doesn't inform him that Wilford is duplicating the work. <laughs> now, do you, do you think, I know you and I like to you, laugh about these things because right? can't you see J.D. J.D. McAllister Doing the, doing the baptism thinking, I, I, I can't tell him. I can't tell him we did this last year. Let's, let's just let the moment be, right? Let's just let it go. Uh, right, right, right. And, and, and 
it's not like he's saying a couple of them. I mean, he tells us all these names of people, makes it sound like it's a pretty large group, and it's the very people he's naming that have already had their ordinances done. Yeah. Yeah, that's a to me that's a problematic story. Hmm. Lots of lots of issues with that story. What about um oh, there's a what about the uh you've heard the story of the Salt Lake Temple having elevator shafts in it, right? Sure, this is another great miracle. Brigham Young be before there's any such thing as elevators. Uh, makes plans for the Salt Lake Temple, receives revelation from God on the floor plan, very similar to the way that Joseph Smith received uh, floor plans for the Kirtland and Nauvoo Temple. So Brigham Young receives the revelation for the Salt Lake Temple and in the wisdom of God, plans ahead to have these spaces, these columns of spaces in the building structure so that later on when elevators are invented, they essentially fit right into those spaces and it's like it was made for those. Right, that that did happen, right, Chris? Yeah, uh, well, not exactly uh, that way. <laughs> um, yeah, not exactly. Uh, the elevator was invented by Otis in America in 1854. He got his his patent. I think he got his patent in 52, actually, but he shows it off in the World's Fair in 54. Um, Bill, I believe the architect was Truman Angel, right? Truman O Angel. Yeah, in fact, I'm just looking it up now. Um, I'm showing a note here that Truman Angel visited and studied the uh, elevator designs in Europe while working on the plans for the Salt Lake Temple. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> I remember reading that he toured Europe to get uh, ideas for the architectural, um, how the how the temple would look, the Salt Lake Temple would look. So. And you mentioned elevators in the 1850s in the United States. It looks like elevators have been over in like Europe and other places like in the early to mid 1700s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes it crazy. Yeah. So yeah, whether he left space in the temple or not, I, I, I'm not sure that it's relevant. Um, because the way the story is well, told. Well, definitely not revelatory. Yeah. The way the story is told is that <laughs> there's no way the builders of the temple would have known about elevators yet. They left some spaces for elevator. Elevators to be installed after the fact. So yeah, whether spaces or not, elevators are already around. It's not, an, it's already invented. There's nothing miraculous with the contraptions that take you to the Holy of Holies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there's actually back to one of our stories we told before, uh, the Lorenzo Snow vision. There are people that believe that Lorenzo Snow is not allowed to see Jesus Christ in the Holy of Holies because of his um, support of anti-polygamy legislation and uh, he, he his not supporting of polygamy after the fact. So that's why Jesus had to mm. appear to him in the hallway. <laughs> it's a funny... So you're, you're not really worthy of my presence in the special room, but I will visit you out here in the corridor. Yeah, because you didn't yeah, defend polygamy. Crazy. Um, um, the Lost Tribes. Like, this is one, when, again, another one when I joined the church, I was told there were Lost Tribes still hidden in different places of the earth. And I think Elder McConkie or somebody talks about them being under the ice caps. I I just want to check with you. Are you aware of us having discovered the uh, the 10 Lost Tribes yet? Uh, well, no. Today, I think we say that the Lost Tribes just live among us, don't we? You're saying we changed our theology? 
Well, sure. I mean, yeah, loosely. Uh, Bruce, <laughs> Bruce, Bruce did say that, uh, that he thought that they may be under the ice caps, but you know, this is way before we have satellites and we could map the earth and we knew where things were and, uh, you know, it was probably just an idea he had. Cool idea. And, and maybe to add one on top of that that ties into the Old Testament that we still hold very strongly in our, our Mormon theology, and we still have lessons every year on this, but the city of Enoch, right? God, this city was so righteous. Enoch was such a good leader. He got an entire city to, to be righteous. And I mean like super righteous that God comes down and like carves out this chunk of earth with this city in it. And that city then takes off and goes up into outer space. Um, any thoughts on if, if we've on our visits to like the moon or sending like satellites out, have we, have we located the city of Enoch yet? <laughs> I know that you, uh, you and I both enjoy reading uh, Jack Spong and he's, um, he it likes to talk about a three tiered universe and how a lot of these people describe the world around them believing in a three-tiered universe, which, you know, hell was below terra firma where they, you know, stood. Um, and uh, heaven was in the sky just above the clouds. And so telling a story like the city of Enoch literally rising into into the sky would have made sense with their understanding of the universe um, since it just rose above the clouds as they told the story. But uh, yeah, that doesn't make very much sense with what we know today. And yet that's still a big piece of Mormon theology is the city of Enoch. And, and we're, you know, trying to create Zion here. And, and we use, we use um, Enoch in that city is kind of the example to kind of pattern ourselves up uh, after. But the reality is that, Chances are none of us, no matter how righteous we are, will ever live in outer space on a piece of this earth. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's figurative, uh, like a lot of the Old Testament. You think it's just a metaphor? I hope so, because there's a lot less oxygen up there. Yeah, they wouldn't have done very well once they <laughs> got about 12,500 feet up. They would have started to pass out, but... Um, <laughs> that's why I think you have to just take these... Don't you have to take these stories as just, uh you know... Metaphoric uh, stories that people tell sure. to, to sure. explain God and what they their ideas of God. Yeah, I, I very much do that myself. I just hope that we can begin in, as a faith to make space for that kind of non-literal belief. Um, let's get back to something really tangible. Uh, World War II. There is this interesting story I've heard before with a uh, Japanese kamikaze pilot, right? Uh, yeah. On his way to Pearl Harbor with the rest of his flight crew, uh, he, he kind of goes off the, the path and rather than going after Pearl Harbor, this gentleman tries to, uh, bomb the Hawaii temple and, uh, three different and, times. And makes right? the effort, yeah, makes the effort to do it and, and because of a miracle, miraculous intervention of God, it's unable to occur. Yeah. Uh, this story, this story has always been a hard one for me because you have the Japanese fleet sails to Pearl Harbor to hopefully sink and destroy the, you know, the bulk of the United States Navy. But one pilot with one bomb under his plane decides to, 
announce the presence of them 15 minutes before they reach their military target and try to bomb a, a church. That story to me is a, a hard one. It, it doesn't make it doesn't make any sense. I'm sure this guy was executed the minute he landed if he really tried to do something like this, right? I mean, right. Can you imagine his commanders? What you did? What man? You you saw some church and we're going to try to drop your bomb on it? And then you know, right. him saying, "No, oh, man, it didn't it, it work. My bomb wouldn't my bomb wouldn't drop. You know, <laughs> handle was broken. It no go." Um, and you can imagine them saying, "What the? What are you talking about? You know, you had a job to do. That bomb was for a battleship, not a church. You know, right? So. Surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Everything. I mean, like like every detail of this attack is is planned for." And these Japanese, uh, air combat fighters are like the, the whole, the whole goal is to catch Pearl Harbor by surprise and to risk it over some religious building. Like you say, seems absolutely ridiculous. And if I remember right, the sources for this story, um, you have one Hawaii guy, like when he's a kid, he's like laying on his back in a field and he sees a plane go by a few times. And he tells the story that he thinks the plane was trying to attack the, the Hawaii temple. And then isn't like, isn't there some Japanese guy after the war when the missionaries go to see him, he has like these regrets and sees an old photo of the, of a Washington DC temple and says he tried to bomb that place and tells the missionaries to get out of his home. Yeah. I think it's and he's the never actual, been, never been at peace since. I think it's the actual Laia temple. Um, that they show him a picture of and he, uh, but once again, this is a very late story. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that it's, uh, you know, reliable from a historian's perspective, but an interesting story. Um, uh, <laughs> me pull lever, bomb, no drop. <laughs> me try three times. Can you imagine, the, can you imagine the, the captain of the ship, his commander saying, you did what, man? You were supposed to fly to Pearl Harbor. You left your squadron. You're all by yourself. Oh, yeah, I don't think he would have made it back to Japanese soil. No, right. This would have, this would have been, uh, yeah, this would have been counter to everything they had planned for. Um, let's see. What else do we got here? I'm just looking through, uh, Simon's Rider, right? Simon's Rider, again, people leave the church over simple reasons, Chris. Nobody has a legitimate reason for leaving the church, yeah, and that includes Simon's writer, Simon's, who left because his name was spelled wrong. Simon's writer's name was never spelled right. It's not even right on his headstone, on his tombstone. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know that his name was ever spelled right. And even after his uh, supposed name being spelled wrong and it offended him, he stayed in the church for another what year and a half. Yeah. And, yep. Almost a year and a half. Um, 1830 census, S-I-M-O-N-D-S, 1840 census, S-Y-M-O-N-D-S, 1850 census, his wife's name is spelled wrong, 1860 census, they're back to using a Y, uh, the 1850 they used an I again, 1870 was S-Y-M-A-N-D-S, like if this guy got offended because his name was spelled wrong, he was offended like every day of his life. <laughs> Exactly. Like, like the guy who got his name right was like a miracle. Yeah, that's right. That's who we should have followed when they got this name, <laughs> get his name spelled right. Right. There's our prophet. Uh, he got it right. Yeah. They I mean his wife spelled his wife's name is Mahitable. 
They get her name slaughtered in every census. They've got his name messed up in every census. It, it's just a, it's a crazy thing. Um, and you're right. On the tombstone, the word disciples is spelled wrong. D-E-S-C-I-P-L-E-S. Mm-hmm. Um, just crazy. You know, from the, to the day that guy died and even beyond, that guy never got a fair break on the spelling within his life. You think we got it right when we did his temple work? I'm sure his temple work's been done a few times at this point. Yeah, I'm sure we, you know, we probably did it for all the spellings, right? <laughs> we may have. <laughs> I mean, if Hitler gets like six baptisms, Simon's rider should get at least a couple dozen. I would think. Right. Um, and there's a lot of other, there's a lot of other Mormon folklore. Cain's a fun one to talk about. Um, not too much of that anymore, right? Cain is Bigfoot. Not too much of that anymore. We don't really hit that. No, no. There's there's a good article on it though. Um, a few years ago, there was a, a really fun article. Um, that's about it. That's about all I can think of. Do you have anything else? Um, no. I mean, there's other things, but I think they're all just ridiculous. Though. Well, why do you think? And I don't think this is unique to Mormonism, but why do you think we are? Uh, you know, obsessed with telling faith-promoting stories? My simple answer would be, we believe we're the, for us, again, I, I get this goes way beyond Mormonism, but for us as Mormonism, like, we're the true church. We're the true and living church. We have priesthood. We have keys. We have the power and authority of God. Like, if miracles aren't present here, what does that say? And so I think there's always been this concerted effort in Mormonism to almost accept without questioning these super miraculous stories. And I'll give an example using the Holland story. When Elder Holland's story was first uh, told in the Deseret News, the moment I saw it, the moment you saw it, the moment uh, Radio Free Mormon, who did an episode this morning, uh, it is uh, the 3rd of August that we're doing this, when he did his episode that just released this morning, um, he said he knew it right away. As soon as this came out, like his spidey sense was going off. And yet the the traditional Orthodox member of the church believes these things just without even questioning them because, first off, we trust our leaders. We trust our leaders to have vetted these stories, and we're expecting the supernatural within Mormonism. And I think that, again, goes outside of Mormonism. I think religious people in general are much more accepting of a not only a miraculous story, but a story so miraculous that it has eight, nine, ten different phenomenal pieces that just have to line up. And it's just less likely for those folks to kind of question that sort of thing. Whereas someone like me, like soon as I hear a story and I go, nah, I don't think that happened. And I'll just kind of hold out for, for more information to come out before I make any kind of uh, judgment call that that actually did occur. So do you believe that God still performs miracles? Um, so I'm, I'm really open to miracles. I've had some experience in my own life, but they're much more mundane. I, I don't, I don't see God parting seas today. I don't see God raining down fires. I don't see prophets striking critics dumb, mute, or having a three day slumber. I don't see 2000 stripling warriors going up against a more experienced, larger, uh, army of soldiers and walking away with only some blood loss and a little bit of fainting. Like, I just think the, the internet's here. We've, we've got access to, uh, to, uh, media sources and technology that we can verify history in the very moment it happens. And now that we can do that, 
these real giant supernatural miracles no longer seem to occur. And so, yes, I'm okay with miracles. Um, I'm okay with even a healing, uh, from time to time. I'm, I'm just not, if it sounds too good to be true and it involves supernatural power, I just, Ooh, you hear that thunder? Yeah, that's, uh, that's maybe a, that's a that's sign. A, maybe that's, that's God telling me right now that we need to probably close this <laughs> podcast up. Um, that could have been my stomach. That's going to be good. I'm hungry. Well, that's, maybe it was, maybe it was your stomach. <laughs> Do you enjoy living in a world, though, where miracles, large miracles, big miracles don't seem to be taking place? It's a good question. Um, I would have said no probably five, ten years ago. But I, to the world I live in, like, I, I think God works through natural means. And I, I'm certainly open to, to a heavenly father and, and a, and a supreme being, but, I see him as much more hands-off, much more letting us use our agency and not really interrupting um, the flow of things through supernatural means. I just, I just don't really see that being the way God operates. And, and I'm using the last, you know, 300 years, 400 years as an example. I just don't, in the last 400 years of history, see any credible evidence of something just, just unbelievable happening that there's just no way to explain it. Mm. No, fair enough. What do you think? Uh, I agree with a lot of what you said. It doesn't appear that, um, these, these grand miracles of the past, we don't seem to be experiencing those. Um, uh, it saddens me, but I also, um, uh, my belief would be, uh, I believe that, uh, a lot of this is people explaining, trying to explain the unexplainable. And the more we learn and the more we learn more about the world around us, uh, there's less to, there's less supernatural to explain. Right, right. And that makes perfect sense when you understand how history has unfolded and how human beings um, have unfolded and how we've told history and told stories and told legends and fables and myths since the beginning of time, um, I'm, I'm with you. Like the world is much more explainable now. And so there's less reason for these kinds of things. So yeah, I'm with you. Um, I think we've taken apart a lot of stories in Mormonism. One we didn't hit on, probably should just touch on just briefly is the Elsa Johnson story. Uh, maybe we should leave the listeners with a faithful tale. Um, Elsa Johnson had a, a lame arm. She's in Hiram, Ohio. She's the wife of John Johnson. Joseph Smith arrives in Kirtland, which is just a short distance from Hiram, Ohio. He ends up living with the, the Johnson family for a short time, him and Emma. This is the location where uh, a mob comes and ja- uh, drags Joseph and Sidney Rigdon uh, outside and into the cold in the, in the winter and uh, drags them along the ground. Their, their heads are bumping the ground, which caused Sidney some, some issues later on and throughout his life. But uh, Elsa Johnson, having this lame arm, she couldn't even reach up to hang her laundry on a clothesline. And Joseph gives her a blessing. And not only do the Latter-day Saints testify that she was healed, but we have like two or three non-member accounts of people healing, or I should say, we have two or three non-member accounts of people in the area, namely one of them is a Quaker who is very opposed to Mormonism. And he testifies that, Sister Johnson's arm is now miraculously healed. 
Is, is that, yeah, so maybe, is that Amos Hayden? Go ahead. Is that who you're thinking of? Um, that sounds right. Yes. Amos Hayden, I believe. Eyewitness, non-believer, uh, in, uh, in Joseph Smith and, uh, others too, like Ezra Booth, who is a member, uh, but was a Methodist preacher at the time. I think it's one of the reasons he converts over to the church. I think you're right. I think that's the, the event that he converts over. So while we've kind of knocked down a bunch of myth, you know, a bunch of false uh, faith promoting stories of Mormonism, and I, I'm glad we did this. Like, I think it's important that we, we recognize that truth is important. And if a story is being told as literally true and it's not, like people, we all need to kind of think that about that and, and, and be willing to kind of know what the information is and wrestle with it. But, uh, if we leave people with this actual miracle that happens and, uh, Elsa Johnson, um, at least for the short term, uh, is able to move her arms as if she was, you know, 15, 20 years younger. She, she kind of reports back saying, um, uh, again, I, I think there are miracles in this world, things we can't explain. And, uh, until I've got a better answer, I'm happy to, to give, uh, to give a uh, supreme being or God the credit for that. Yeah, I am too. Cool. Um, anything else on your mind before we close this one? No, up? it's been good. It's been fun. Excellent. So Chris Bloxham, Bill Real with Mormon Discussion Podcast, uh, tackling, I don't know what we did, maybe a dozen or so, uh, faith promoting stories within Mormonism and tackling most of them not necessarily happening the way we were told they happened. Um, but a couple of them seem to still be pretty miraculous and, uh, on some level, I think still faith promoting. Um, but, yeah, I think going forward, we just as a church in a information age, we just all have to do better to do what Elder Ballard said uh, when he taught the CES teachers not too long ago. Let me warn you not to pass along faith-promoting or unsubstantiated rumors or outdated understandings and explanations of our doctrine practices from the past. Uh, so with that, uh, Chris, thank you so much for being on tonight. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Awesome.